Good morning. Really, really glad you're here. I hope you're glad you're here by the time we get done. <laughs> if you're joining us online, I'm glad you're here too. Now, one of the toughest things that Jesus ever said to us is this. If you want to be my follower, you've got to forget yourself. You need to take up your own cross, your own cross, every single day, and you've got to follow me. And Jesus doesn't really explain what he means by it there. He just shows us by how he lives. And his disciples kind of unpack what it does mean for us. Now, that's what Peter's going to do in the verses we're going to tackle this morning. And if, I'm going to guess you're not going to like these verses. I know because I don't like them much. And you're enough like me that I suspect you're not going to like them either. And if we were just going to talk about what I think, then you'd have every right to blow it off and walk away. But this is Peter, the apostle. This is the walk on water Peter, the deny Jesus Peter, the leader of the early church Peter. He wrote this letter to believers in Turkey. He buried in the letter some of the toughest stuff the Bible teaches. Now, it may be that this letter is near the back of the Bible so that if, because I knew if you read this stuff first, you wouldn't keep reading but you've been warned. You might want to slip out, you know, like you're using the restroom and just keep heading out the door if you want. But if you want to know what it means to take up your cross every single day, lean in. I'm going to take you through some verses and let them do the talking. Now, if you're kind of old, you don't have to be really old, but if you're kind of old, you might remember this book. All I need really to know I learned in kindergarten. You guys remember that book? Robert Fulgham? I mean, how many of you guys have really studied what it means to be a decent person by those kinds of rules? Now, he, he actually says that I didn't learn how to be a decent person in graduate school. He says I learned it in the sand pile at Sunday school. And these are some of the lessons that he learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Take a nap every afternoon. And when you go out into the world, watch for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. It's not bad. Now, living a great God-honoring life requires a whole lot more than that, but you can't blow this stuff off. It's part of it. Or do you think this stuff is too quaint now, too fairy tale esque It is for a lot of folks, I think, judging by the pandemic of disrespect out there. Most people aren't living this way. In fact, can you imagine how society would change if everybody started living this stuff out. What kind of a difference that would make. Now there's another book I suspect very few of us have read. It was first published in 1998, How to Be a Gentleman by John Bridges. Now this Bridges is 
been on the Today Show, CBS Sunday Morning, been profiled in the New York Times, People Magazine. I mean, he's been published in Esquire, Men's Health, a parcel of other venues. And yet, his rules for how to be a gentleman sound funny to us. Quaint. Out of style. Book's only 20 years old. In fact, some of his guidelines almost seem immoral to us now. Now, there's a boatload in this little book, but here are his 10 eternal truths of the gentlemanly life. Are you ready? Number one, a gentleman says please and thank you readily and often. Really? Number two, a gentleman does not disparage the beliefs of others, whether they relate to matters of faith, politics, or sports. <laughs> really? Well, disparaging the beliefs of others is kind of a national sport now, isn't it? Number three, a gentleman always carries a handkerchief and he's ready to lend it, especially to a weeping lady, should the need arise. Now, that's just male supremacy, Right? Number four, a gentleman never allows a door to slam in the face of another person, male or female, young or old, absolute stranger, or longtime best friend. Now, there's got to be an exception if it's an enemy, right? He says, number five, a gentleman does not make jokes about race, religion, gender, or sexual orientation, nor does he find such jokes amusing. Huh. But some of them are really funny. Number six, a gentleman knows how to stand in line and wait his turn. Come on, a real guy knows how to make his way to the front of the line, right? Number seven, a gentleman is always ready to offer a hearty handshake. At least he was before COVID. Now maybe a fist bump, right? Number eight, a gentleman keeps his leather shoes polished and his fingernails clean. That's just stupid. Number nine, a gentleman admits when he's wrong. That just makes you look weak. And number 10, a gentleman doesn't pick a fight. Unless, of course, you're on Facebook. Now, there's a word that I use quite often. It's the word dis. Now, it's a street word. It's a slang word for disrespect. To dis someone is to disrespect someone, maybe to disparage somebody, to mock, ridicule, treat some guy or some girl with contempt. And I think dissing has become a national sport. Republicans diss Democrats, Democrats diss Republicans. The young diss the old, the old diss the young. Kids diss their parents and their teachers. Parents diss their bosses and their neighbors. We diss others who refuse to sign on to our causes. We diss those who wear blue. Others diss those who are white or black or whatever. In fact, our most talented dissers own the social media, right? <clears throat> or they're the ones who write the script for so many of our TV shows. And dissing is contagious, isn't it? If you're around it long enough, you catch it. And if it's pointed at you, you learn to fire it right back. It's called self-defense. But did you know that dissing is fertilizer for hate? And did you know that hate is a virus that kills Jesus following? It's not who we are. 
It's not what we do, now, how, no matter how much of it is aimed at us. Well, I want to dig into what Peter says to us Jesus followers about how to do life in a world that's like ours. You ready? Peter says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, as exiles living in this world, as strangers in this world, Keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Live properly, not as you define it, but as God defines it. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they're going to see your honorable behavior, and they're going to give God honor when he judges the world. Two things. Thing number one, we talked about this a little bit last week. Listen, guys, I don't care if you're an American by birth. I don't care if you're Kentucky born and bred. If you are a Jesus follower, Peter's talking about you. You are resident aliens living here in Frankfurt. We are outsiders who are kind of weird to them. Our way is to not adopt their ways because some of their ways will corrupt our ways, right? That's what Peter says. He says, keep away from worldly desires, their ways, which are going to wage war against our souls, like dissing each other. That's going to kill your soul, right? Like living for self. Living for self is a soul killer. You see, as temporary residents, as foreigners, kind of like living in exile here, right? Our God expects us to respect the customs and the laws of our culture, as long as they're God-honoring, but He does not expect us to adopt their gods, their values, or their moralities when they clash with His. Now, do you buy that? Really? And here's thing number two. Peter tells us to live properly, to live properly as God defines properly, not as I define properly, not as you define properly, not as they define properly, as God defines it, right? To live such good lives as God defines good, not as I do, not as you do, not as they do, as God defines good, to be so honorable that even if they think we're weird, they have to admit we're trying to be good people. You see, when resident aliens come into our country, we expect them to be respectful of our customs and laws, right? Well, we're the resident aliens, so we're respectful of their customs and laws, as long as they don't violate His. So even though they may think we're crazy sometimes, we make good neighbors, we make good friends, we make good colleagues, because we try to be God-honoring, people-loving people. And then Peter starts meddling. He starts unpacking what he means. And this is the part of what he says that I kind of despise. Because they grate against my self. Peter says, for the Lord's sake, not for their sake, but for the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority. Really? I don't think so. That's what I want to say. Submit to all human authority, whether the king is the head of the state or the officials he's appointed. We well, he can't mean that, can he? 
For the king has sent, or for, for the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. And to be honest, if those in authority were always punishing those who do wrong and honoring those who do right, this wouldn't be so hard, but they don't always do that the way I think they should. Now listen, guys, our default, our default is to not respect human authority. Our default is to diss, to disparage, to disrespect. Our default is rebelliousness. We started rebelling in the Garden of Eden. We've been struggling with rebelliousness ever since. Just ask the parent of any two-year-old, right? We're born ornery. And unless our parents do an amazing job, we get better and better at ornery as we get older. And whether we're aggressive-aggressive or passive-aggressive, most of us kind of live ornery. And then Peter comes along and tells us this. Submit to all human authorities voluntarily. It's a command that you can choose to obey or not, right? But it's not cool. Now listen, Peter is not telling us to be servile, wussy, groveling patsies. He says respect authority. You know why? Because God put authority structures in place. And when they work the way God meant them to, they make life way better. They make living together. They make working together way better. I mean, how could you actually live together without different kinds of authority? Let me show you. Can you imagine coming up to a busy intersection and no one respects the authority of the traffic lights? What would that be like? You'd call it gridlock, right? Can you imagine being in a band or an orchestra or in a choir and no one respected any authority? So everybody can pick their own music, set their own tempo, tempo choose their own key. How's that going to sound? Can you imagine trying to play a game together and no one respects anyone else's authority? Coaches don't have any say, refs don't have any say, rule book doesn't mean anything at all. How's that going to work? Imagine growing up in a family where there was no authority. No one respected anyone else's authority. No parents. How's it going to work? Well, look around. You can see some of it happening, right? Imagine going to school when no one respected any kind of authority. No authority to teach. No authority to keep order. Some of that's happening too. And it's not pretty. Peter says, for God's sake, for God's sake, respect authority. Not because the authorities are always smarter than you are or better than you are, because they always get it right, but because living together peaceably requires it. Unless, perhaps, they're no longer punishing those who are doing wrong, as God defines it, and honoring those who are doing right, as God defines it. But we'll get there in a minute. Peter goes on to say, he says, it's God's will that your honorable lives will silence those ignorant people who are making foolish accusations against you. And here's the part that's so big to me. This is so important. He says, for you are free, and yet you're God's slaves. You're free, and let your, except you're still God's slaves. But do not use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. The NIV puts it like this. Live as free people. 
Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as free people, live as God's slaves. Huh. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Live as free men to men. They don't know us. They can't force us to adopt their values. They can't force us to disrespect our God. We're free from men. Do you know why? Because we are servants of God. Huh. And His will trumps theirs every single time. And it is our God's will that we are honorable people, good people, by His standards, not theirs. We respect legitimate authority because we fear God, not men. And the next little piece is huge. He says, don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil like people out there are doing every single day. And there are people out there who are advocating for some cause, who are mocking, slandering, canceling anybody who disagrees with them. Some of you guys might be doing that stuff. That's using your freedom as an excuse for evil. There are people out there who are advocating for their cause who are destroying property, looting stores, intimidating or even hurting people who disagree with them. That's using your freedom as an excuse for evil, and it is not our way. There are people out there who exercise their freedom of speech as an excuse to spew gossip and hate. That's using freedom as a cover-up for evil. Peter says, don't do that stuff. We're Jesus followers. We follow Jesus, right? Jesus do that kind of stuff? We're going to get there. And then he says it again. These are really, really hard words. He says, respect everyone. Respect everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Respect the king. Respect everyone. Love each other. Respect the authorities. Fear God. Fear only God. Now, if you look at those words carefully, he doesn't say it. respect everybody because they deserve it. Respect everybody because they've earned it. He says, just do it. If you have parents, respect them. Whether you think they have earned your respect or not. If they're a police, respect them. Whether you think they always deserve it or not. If you're a student in a class, respect your teacher. Whether you think they have earned your respect or not. Kids, respect your elders whether you think they're dorks or not. On the job, respect the authority of your bosses, whether you agree with them or not. Now, if the authority wants you to do something that dishonors our God, we say no. Because what our God says trumps anything anyone else says, right? But if it's not dishonoring to our God, we respect them. Because we're servants of God. And that's what God says. It's not about the person. It's about the position, right? We don't have permission as Jesus followers to despise a person just because they disagree with us. We don't have permission from our God to despise a, a person who's in authority just because they are not a Jesus follower. 
We don't have permission to diss a person because we think in some fashion that they are beneath us. We don't have permission to diss a person because they're not passionate about our cause, although we do that all the time. (coughs) We don't even have permission to diss a person because they diss us first. We don't diss back. Somewhere around 130 A.D., there was a Jesus follower who wrote a letter to a guy named Diognetus. Jesus followers started passing the letter around because, well, the guy gets it, and it's really powerful. Words are going to sound kind of funny because they're pretty old, but you're going to get the picture. Here's what he says. He says, we Jesus followers dwell in our own countries, but as sojourners, as resident aliens, that's who we are. As citizens, kind of, we share in all things with others, but we endure all things as if we're foreigners because our ways are different and our values are different. We marry as do all the others, but, and we beget children, but we don't destroy our offspring. We have a common table, but we don't have a common bed. They're in the flesh, but we don't live for the flesh. We pass our days on earth, but we are citizens of heaven. We obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, we surpass those laws by our lives. We love all men, but we're still persecuted by all. We're poor, but we make many others rich. We lack in all things, and yet we abound in all. We're dishonored, and yet in our very dishonor, we are glorified. We're evil spoken of, and yet we're justified. We do what's right. We're reviled, and we bless back. We're insulted, and we repay the insult with honor. How weird is that? We do good, and yet we're punished as evildoers. Go figure. But that's not going to make us quit doing good. We're assailed by the Jews as foreigners, as outsiders. We're persecuted by the Greeks, and yet those who hate us are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, we Christians are to the world. They're trying to live it out the way we're supposed to. Peter says it's God's will that by doing good, God's kind of good, you silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's servants, even when you are treated intolerably. You see, these rules don't just apply when people are good to us. In fact, he goes on to say this. He says, you guys who are slaves must submit to your masters with respect. Just a side note, guys. Don't you dare take from this verse that God condones slavery. He does not. Peter's telling Jesus' followers how to respond honorably even when they treat us badly. He says, do what they tell you, not only if they're kind and reasonable, but even if they're cruel. Holy cow. Because God is pleased when conscious of His will, we patiently endure injustice. Because how else are they going to see Jesus in us? He says, of course, you're not going to get any credit for being patient if you're being beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. And I'm telling you guys that God's pleasure means a whole lot more than the pleasure of men.
And then here's the coup de grace. This is the part that Peter's been driving to. We are Jesus followers, guys, so follow Jesus. Think about the way Jesus did life in this world, a world that's at war with our God. Think about how Jesus tried to influence our world, to win back our world. Verse 21. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as, just like, in the same way Christ suffered for you. He is your example. He is your model. He sets the standard. And we have to follow in his steps. That's what Jesus following means, following in his steps, right? You see, Jesus didn't just suffer and die to save us, which he did. How he suffered, how he died, he was showing us how it's done God's way. You see, life's going to be hard for us, too. Sometimes life is hard because we live in these broken bodies in a broken world, so we get hurt, we get sick, we get cold, we get hungry, we get tired. Can they tell you are a Jesus follower when you get hurt, sick, cold, hungry, or tired because you're different and you face it differently than they do? Sometimes life is hard because we make sinful choices. I do stupid things. And sometimes the stupid things I do makes life hard on me and hard on the people around me. Can they tell you're a Jesus follower after you do something stupid by what you do next? Sometimes life is hard because people around us sin. Their sin hurts us. Can they tell you're a Jesus follower when people around you sin, even if they sin specifically against you, by how you respond like Jesus did? I'll show you how Jesus did it. Peter goes on to say this. He says, Jesus never sinned back. He didn't deceive anyone. He didn't lie. He didn't retaliate when he was insulted like we do. And boy, Jesus could have retaliated. He didn't threaten revenge when he suffered, like we do. How would you like to face a vengeful Jesus? Instead, he left his case into the hands of God who always judges fairly. That's hard to do, isn't it? To trust God to make it right when we're done wrong. In fact, he personally carried our sins in his body on a cross so we can be dead to sin and live for what's right. You see, I can do life with God, for God, God's way. Why? Because by his wounds, I was healed. By his wounds, you are healed. You see, when people put a target on your back, you've got options. You could hide. A lot of Jesus followers hide, kind of shut ourselves off from the world to protect ourselves. You could fire back. If they're mean to us, you can get mean to them. I mean, I can do anger and vengeance and ridicule and mockery with the best of them. Could even compromise. Coming after me, I could just simply put aside those things that are so hateful. I could start compromising on God's truth so it's not so offensive. Start adopting their ways instead of trying to live out God's ways. Or, as a servant of God, I could take a stand on God's truth and respond with God's grace. Never compromise on God's truth 
and never quit on grace. I can choose to be a good man, not as they define goodness, not as I define goodness, but as God defines goodness. It's going to take courage, but I can respond with truth and grace like Jesus did. So let me leave you with two questions. Are you ready? Question number one. How far are you willing to go in your Jesus following? How much pain are you willing to take before it breaks you? How many bullets does it take to make you quit? Question number two. So how are you going to respond when life gets tough? Are you going to hide? Maybe compromise? It's too soft. It's too tepid. Are you going to fight back their way? It's too hard. It's too hot. You're going to try to do it like Jesus did, courageously, with truth and grace. That's who we are. It's what we do. And it's hard, isn't it? That's the lesson. Like I said, it's tough stuff, isn't it? Really, really tough stuff. But I think it's the challenge that God gives to us. Maybe you need some help doing life that way. I'm just going to ask you to, you know, if God's nudging on you, spend some time with God in these next few minutes and maybe ask His forgiveness, maybe ask His courage, maybe ask His strength so that you can respond to this world the way Jesus did. It may be that you're not even a Christian at all yet. And even though this seems hard, you sense it's the right thing to do. It's the right way. I'm telling you guys, the only path to a, an abundant life is to do life God's way. If you want to get a life with Jesus started, let's do it this morning. Right now, we can, we can get that done. There's, a, there's an elder praying for you in that room in the back. It says prayer right over the top. You can go back there, slip in, and they'll talk to you, and they can pray with you. I'm going to sit right down here. If you want to come up in the next song, just come on down and let's talk. It may be that uh, you are a Jesus follower, but you don't have a church home. I'm telling you guys, don't try to go it alone. We're not strong enough. We're not smart enough to go it alone. We've got to do this thing together. If not Capital City Christian Church, you find a good God-honoring church and you make it home. You need that kind of family. But if you want Capital City to be your family and He's the King of your life, we'd love to have you. Join us. Come on down here and let's talk about it. Let's stand up and sing the song together.